What's going on, everybody? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and we're super excited to share today's episode with Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, a financial technology company powering millions of small businesses, which he launched in 2009 with Jack Dorsey, who's also the founder and CEO of Twitter. The company debuted on the New York Stock Exchange in 2015 and is currently worth about $53 billion. Jim is also the author of the innovation stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, where he breaks down what it truly means to be an entrepreneur and build a world-changing business. It's one of my personal favorite books that I've read in a very, very long time, and we wanted to dive deep into some of the concepts and stories Jim shares in the book. So we definitely recommend picking up a copy if you enjoy this conversation. We talked about everything from Jim's personal story and how being an outcast at a young age helped him as an entrepreneur, how he got into glass blowing and eventually opened up his own studio, which he still runs today, hiring Jack Dorsey as an intern at his first company and how their relationship has evolved, how losing a sale at a studio gave him the idea for Square, the evolution of the word entrepreneur and what it truly means, experience versus naivete when it comes to innovation, how he literally built the Square Reader and went against Apple's rules and regulations the meeting with Steve Jobs that never happened, how they went up against Amazon and won, managing fear and staying motivated, and what his definition of success is. So if you're currently an entrepreneur or interested in taking the leap, I think you'll really enjoy this one. Here we go. So Jim, talk to us a little bit about you know, your early days before you became an entrepreneur. You know, What was life like for you? Where did you grow up? Give us some details. So before I became an entrepreneur, I kind of was an entrepreneur, just didn't know it, um, which was to say that I was sort of an outcast. Um, not, you know, horribly, you know, uh, I grew up in a pretty solid family, but I was always weird. And, um, you know, my, my family didn't really fit into our neighborhood. Um, we lived in a pretty well-to-do neighborhood, but my, my dad was a professor. So um, I was not um, uh, ever really with the in crowd. And I developed a you know, first resentment, I guess. <laughs> and then, you know, just acceptance that I was not going to fit in. And then uh, as I get got into, you know, high school and college and beyond, um, I was less uncomfortable not fitting in. I won't say I was comfortable, but it was one of those things that I just sort of accepted. And I think that's been really valuable as a entrepreneur, because like if you use the sort of classic definition of entrepreneur, which is somebody who's doing something that hasn't been done before, as opposed to just, you know, any old business person. Um, entrepreneurs are outcasts. They have to be outcasts because if you're doing something that hasn't been done, society rejects you until it works. So, I mean, like, I can't tell you how many people I heard making fun of electric cars until they got in a Tesla, you know, and now it's like, oh, this thing's badass. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but you were mocking these things literally uh, five years ago. So um, that early foundation, um, you know, probably built up a good callus. When you say you didn't fit in as a kid, like what kind of things were you into that perhaps, you know, uh, created an outcast out of you? Um, well, I was in a very sports uh, centric uh, school um, and I'm a skinny, sort of poorly coordinated guy uh, and I was never good at fighting. Uh, so I got sorted very quickly to the bottom of the pile. Um, and that was, you know, that's just sort of, sort of where I was placed uh, in, in the sort of socioeconomic uh, uh, ladders of, of the place I grew up with. And look, I'm not, I'm, I'm not whining about this because like right now we're living through a movement where 
way more people have suffered way more than I did. So I don't want to make any sort of big deal about it. I'm just saying that mentally, uh, I got used to not fitting in. And that is one of the great hurdles that people who face an entrepreneurial challenge have to overcome, which is that is, is if you are doing something that has been done by others and you can have credentials for and experience with and be um, you know, likely to succeed, uh, the world is going to treat you very differently. You're going to be in the in crowd and you're gonna, your company's going to get funded and all that stuff. Um, if you are doing something that hasn't been done, the opposite applies. And so you have to have a pretty thick skin. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to tell people how it felt to really do something different and how all these other companies, like it's, the book's not about me. It's just, I'm one example of a dozen. Um, and they all felt the same way. And it's possible to do great stuff, even if you're not fitting in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to be when you grew up as a kid? I still don't. Honest to God, I, I it, it has not changed ever. I mean, you look, Square was a good ride. Um, uh, Invisibly is pretty cool. Uh, Third Degree is fun. Launch Code was fun. I'm doing a bunch of work uh, with the Fed that's interesting. Um, I I don't know where I'm going. And and I, I'm not one of these guys that has a five-year plan uh, or anything like that. I tend to just wander around until I find a problem I care to work on. I guess speaking more so to, you know, your younger days, pre-founder and pre-author, and when you were like in high school, for example, did you aspire to be anything or did you enjoy the uncertainty of what lied ahead for you? So, you know, in high school, uh, yeah, I was expecting to go to college. So that's sort of postponing it. Uh, You know, you think, well, I don't really have to think about what I want to do. I'll go to college. Uh, And I sat down, I was going to go to college and I uh, asked my dad, my dad was the dean of the engineering school at WashU, um, and I was already applying to WashU, but I was not going to go to the engineering school. I, I wasn't planning on it. Um, and I said, I said, Dad, you know, should I be an engineer like you? And uh, he said, Oh no, Jimmy, you 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 like people too much. Engineers are very solitary people, so you should do something else. He said, You should be an economist. So I was like, Okay, that's what I'll do. And literally, that was the whole conversation. So I went in study economics in college. Uh, so I sort of pushed that whole decision away. And then when I got into college, this crazy thing happened, which is I, I happened to take a computer science class where the uh, textbook was so crappy that I decided I would rewrite it, which, you know, as a freshman who didn't know anything about computers was, I mean, it was laughably stupid, but it turns out that uh, stubbornness uh, can produce a textbook. And I was stubborn and I produced a textbook and the textbook did pretty well. And then I got invited to sort of join the engineering school where my father was the dean. And that was weird because I'd never intended to go to my father's school. But that's where all the cool kids were, at least as far as me, which meant that I felt more at home with these sort of nerdy engineers than I did with, you know, the cool guys that knew how to tie neckties. I feel like it's something that so many students face, you know, it's like this like shitty, shitty textbooks that you get in college where you're like, I'm not learning anything. Why am I spending hundreds of dollars on this textbook that probably the professor wrote? Um, yes. <laughs> that, like, but you actually went and actually wrote your own book, which is really impressive. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, but so like, you know, we often hear folks who study engineering in college. It's like something that, you know, it's something that at a young age, they fell into coding and they coded their own program when they were like 14. And now they're like this child prodigy. But for you, it's like you, you sort of like, went into college with a different mindset and then switched, you know, you, you started doing more computer science. Um, what did it come easy to you or was it a challenge for you to like learn how to, I mean, like use computers and code and create 
software? No, it was a real challenge. And as a matter of, that's why I wrote the book. I mean, my first book was, um, you know, a debugging handbook, like to, how to fix the programs because at the times we didn't have any decent software development tools and nobody was there to help. Um, so I wrote a book to help. I, I wrote what I wanted, you know? So every time I've written four books in my life and every time I've done it, it was this sort of feeling that, man, I wish I'd had something like this. Like I wish somebody had told me this. Um, and so in each case I end up, you know, just buckling down and doing it, but there, there are probably a dozen other books that I hadn't written just cause I haven't had the energy, but you know, it's, I'm a slow learner and I'm a reasonably dense person. Uh, but I make up for that with just pure stubbornness. Um, but if you're in that mode, like one little bit of knowledge can make the difference. And so when I, you know, turn over one of these nuggets and I find something that's actually worth learning. Like I want to share that with everybody. You find something. So, so yeah, programming did not come easy to me. I'm still a mediocre programmer. Um, And by the way, you know, that when we started square, that's, that's how I got stuck with all the other stuff. I mean, I, Jack was a great programmer. Tristan was a great programmer and I was a third guy, which meant that, uh, you know, I had to lease the office and clean the place and, build the hardware. I had to figure that out and set up the bank account, like all the no, other stuff. No, no big deal. You had to build the hardware. It's like an actual piece of a, we'll talk about that though. I'm really curious yeah. as to how that all <laughs> came, came to be. Um, yeah. So tell us like, you know, after graduating, I'm not sure if you, did you graduate college or did you end up leaving? No, I graduated. I have two degrees, a degree in economics and a degree in computer science. And then, so what did you end up doing after you graduated? So I worked for a startup for about, uh, Gosh, a couple of months. And uh, I realized that the startup was run by a guy who's basically a crook. Um, and if he's listening to this podcast, you know what I'm talking about, man. And uh, I watched him screw over a bunch of people and think, and I thought, you know, at first, like, wow, this guy's a real badass. And then um, and then I, a couple of weeks later, I thought, wait a second, this guy's a real jackass. Like, he's going to do this to me if I stick around here. So I quit. Um, and, and it was like I feel that. Like I, just, I feel like we've all had... We've all had one of those. Yeah, but most people are smart enough to like line up their next gig before they quit. But I wasn't. Yeah, no, I just quit. Same. <laughs> so. Same with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and 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 then I woke up the next morning and uh, I was like, well, how am I going to pay the rent? And I couldn't get a job as a programmer because like they weren't hiring programmers at the time, um, and uh, no one hires economists. So. Uh, my, my formal training was irrelevant, but I knew how to blow glass. I mean, I, it was this sort of fun class that I took during college. And I thought, wow, you know, if I go back into the studio and start making work, I wonder if I could sell enough of it to, you know, pay the rent. And uh, it turns out you can get really good at something if you have to feed yourself. Like, you know, Patrick, if you woke, woke up the, the next morning and, and you had to make a living playing the banjo, man, you would be picking and grinning in two weeks. Like this, if that was how you feed yourself. You will learn to do it. So I learned to be a pretty good glass blower really fast because I had to. What kind of glass were you blowing? I mean, like what were you making animals or like plants? No, like, what um, was it? You want to see one of them? I mean, I guess this is yeah, a podcast, so, so, but we're on a zoom meeting. I'll take I'll a screenshot with Zoom or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll take a screenshot. So this is, this is a piece I made 1987, just a drinking glass. Um, like it. this is a piece I made, uh, 1988. It's a 
It's a vase. Um, yeah. By the way, that vase is a copy of a famous, famous Vanini piece. I'm not claiming that's original, um, but I wasn't trying to be original. I was trying to feed myself. So I had no artistic right. integrity. Yeah, that was... Uh, how were you... I mean, how were you marketing yourself? How are you making... I mean, how were you making money? Did you have like a group of people that were like passionate about glass things and would buy it from you or you were going... I don't know. No, I got, like, what were you doing? So I got really lucky. Um, I had to apologize to this girl. Uh, and I won't tell you why I had to apologize, but let's, let me just say I had to apologize in public cause I was afraid of a reaction. Um, so I went to her work and she worked in an art gallery and I got there early, uh, expected to catch her, but I wasn't, I, I was too early. She wasn't actually there. And there was this guy there uh, who was having an art show and he was a super nice guy. And we talked a lot. And then, um, uh, during when the show started, he, he turned into this character, he turned into the biggest asshole in the world. And if you know anything about modern art, his name was Mark Kastabi. And Kastabi, I mean, he's famous. Like he got into a fist fight with Sylvester Stallone for calling Stallone an asshole or an idiot for buying two of his paintings. He was like, Stallone doesn't know what he's talking about. He bought two of my paintings, just proves he's an idiot. And I mean, like he was just, a, but he was this character. He was playing this character. And Kastabi sort of taught me this lesson in how to sell art, which is if you're trying to sell art, don't try to sell art. So I uh, jacked up my prices, um, got sort of a unique look. And then um, I did this sort of Kastabi-like attitude. Um, I don't pull it off as well as he did, but um, I was pretty good at not trying to sell stuff. And in the art world, right. that sells a lot of stuff. Yeah, I've realized that too, because you look at like a Mark Rothko painting, painting, for example, and it's just like two colors. It's like a black background with like some auburn red on it. And you're just like, how is this $5 million? But then five. You realize, if you like, get a Rothko for five, I will buy it from you. I mean, just like if you got a Rothko, like sold. I can't wait Round to tell my wife. Up. Oh my God. <laughs> Honey, we got a Rothko for five mil. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> um, around how old were you when you started glass blowing? Like when you uh, the studio and everything? 18, 19, something like that. No, actually I was old. I was probably 20. I was probably 20 when I first picked up a blowpipe. Uh, I mean more, more so like when you when you're doing it for work, like you you open up your own studio and No, no, I couldn't afford my own studio. I was just uh, I was a, a TA at Washington University's uh, studio. I would I would go in there at night because I had the keys to the place and just make all my work and sneak it out. Yeah. Didn't you eventually, though, end up uh, opening up a studio? Yeah. So I opened up a studio about, uh, wow, it was, uh, 18 years ago here in St. Louis, a place called Third Degree Glass Factory. And um, I'm actually he heading there this afternoon. I'm going to work on some work. Um, but uh, it's a teaching studio. So what I realized was that glassblowing is a team activity. And so the quality of your work is highly influenced by the quality of the people around you. I mean, not like other professions, right? Um no, the team matters, especially in glass. And in St. Louis, we didn't have a community. So when we opened up our studio, we realized that we wanted to build a, a school so that we could essentially train the community. And here we are, you know, a couple decades later, we've got this fantastic community of glass blowers here in St. Louis, and the quality of the work is stellar. So that was a, I mean, that was another sort of crazy thing. I didn't know what, to, what I was doing, but it's kind of worked out. <laughs> And all this time, I mean, were you trying to figure out like what's next? So, am I, you know, should I be finding a steady job or like what was going through your mind at the time as a young 20 year old? So, I mean, as a 20 year old, I was sort of panicked because I, I was working, you know, after I quit the, with the 
Crook. I uh, I took a side I took a side gig with IBM. I took a consulting job in LA, um, but it was in LA and I lived in St. Louis, so there was no adult supervision. So they didn't know when I did the work, and they didn't know that what they considered forty hours of work I could do in about five. So um, they were perfectly happy to just let me turn in my work and pay me. So I had that, and then I started another company to build uh, storage cabinets for uh, compact discs, and that business was doing great. Uh, and then I was blowing glass. I was sort of doing those three things. And then um, uh, very suddenly, my mother died. Um, it was in December. Um, and right in the middle of winter, my mom dies unexpectedly. And uh, it threw me into this tailspin. And I realized that I was mediocre at everything. And I, you know, I was a mediocre glassblower. I was definitely a mediocre IBM employee. And I had this mediocre business. And I thought, wow. I need to focus on something. So I, I literally quit all three things. I, I, I almost quit glass blowing entirely, but I, I used it a little bit on the side to, you know, make the money I needed. But I, I put all my energy into a company called Mira and Mira, um, actually I'm having dinner with the CEO today. It's, it's still around, uh, 30 years later. And it, uh, it was the first company that I started. And, um, I decided to focus at that time. Um, but that turned into a disaster. Like it turns out me focusing is not necessarily good. I was about to say, you know, you were, you were like a, a lot of folks who are sort of, you want, you know, the, the generalist for specialist argument. And you, it sounds like you had, you were like a man of many talents. Like you, you, you were good with your hands. You could do glass blowing and work on hardware and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you had this, your software background and then economics and this and that. And so why did you decide? First of all, what did what was Mira like? What did it focus on, and why did you decide to focus on that at the time? Uh, so Mira originally built software, um, which was equivalent to what Adobe Acrobat is now. But we were before Acrobat, and then Adobe comes along with Acrobat and basically wipes the floor with us. Um, but uh, the funny thing is, Acrobat is was technically a what's called a document imaging system. It's a you know storage storage of images essentially. And we built a product that was similar. And there's a trade show for companies that do this stuff. And 30,000 people go to this trade show on how to have paperless offices and leave with bags full of product literature. And I was like, well, that's stupid. Why are they carrying literature on how to have a paperless office? So I decided that I would, uh, uh, in an effort to outpromote Adobe, uh, distribute all of the literature for my trade show at uh, uh, on a CD-ROM that I would make using my software. And the, the trick was to get my software in the hands of everybody at the trade show, i.e., you know, cover the entire market. Um, and uh, the joke was on me because I turned out to make more money charging my competitors to put their literature on my CDs than I ever hoped to make selling software. So I like made 70,000 bucks in one day. And I was like, oh my God, Gosh. how many trade shows are there? And there were like 5,000 of them. And I was like, oh, holy shit, this is great. So uh, I started a company, so we pivoted the company from being a software company to being a trade show publishing company. Um, and that was going great until the World Wide Web showed up and then companies started getting web pages. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to wipe us out. Um, and so I went to the team and I said, hey, we got to pivot like immediately and start doing other types of publishing. And it was really funny because all the people, all my employees agreed with me, but they wouldn't do anything differently. So I ended up, um, I had one employee that was listened to me. Like there's only one person, the whole damn company that would listen to me. And it was my summer intern, a 15 year old kid 
And uh, he would listen to me and do what I said. So I said, look, uh, the two of us are going to go and we're going to start a, we're going to start a new company. And when all these idiots realize that the World Wide Web is going to wipe out what's making them money right now, I'm just going to let them go. Uh, but meanwhile, we'll have a we'll have a separate company that nobody knows about. So Jack and I, that was Jack Dorsey. So Jack and I, I think he was 16 at the time. Uh, Jack and I started a new a new company um, totally on the sly, uh, made a bunch of money, kept it in a side account. And then when the internet, uh, as predicted, wiped out my core business, uh, we just pivoted. I kept like two people and fired the rest of them. Uh, and uh, actually, that company is still running today. Like it's in this office building that I am. And it's, it, it sends me a check every month. It's amazing. Wow. <laughs> So um, obviously you and Jack ended up starting Square, which we'll get into. And, and I know you talk about in the book how you two met, you know, Jack's mother, right? Had a coffee shop that you <laughs> frequent. And she, yes. she said, uh, you know, my son is a programmer. Do you have anything for him? And you hired him as an intern. Is that right? No, she didn't say my son is a programmer. She said, my son likes computers. <laughs> he, wasn't, you know, he wasn't a programmer. I didn't hire a programmer. I hired a kid who was willing to sit in front of a scanner for, uh, you know, 20 hours at a time. And uh, we made the we made Jack pull an all nighter on his first day at work. He got in so much trouble with Marsha, his mother. Uh, but uh, but the relationship has endured. Yeah, Jim. On that first day, did you see something special about Jack, or did that come along the way? Well, the first day was sort of interesting because we were in the middle of a crisis. We'd screwed up a disc, and we had to like redo two hundred man hours of work in you know three days. So we were just taking everybody in and um, Jack came into the office and introduced himself. I was sitting at a terminal at the time typing. And uh, I said, I said, I'll be with you in a minute. And I turned around and went back to my work and forgot about him. Um, and it was, it was a while. Like it was, it was a long time before I got out of that chair. And I, 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 you know, at some point I had to go to the bathroom or something. I got up and turned around and he was standing in exactly the same position. I had to be ignoring this guy for like an obscene amount of time, <laughs> but he was there just quiet and watching. Um, and I was really embarrassed uh, and I apologized and then said, Hey kid, can you work a scanner? And he was like, yeah. And so I set him at a table. Um, it was like a folding table that was reinforced by two by with two by four. So it wouldn't collapse. That's how much paper was on this thing. And Jack uh, worked until 5 a.m. So yeah, special guy, you know, and all his work was excellent. Jack always did great work. No matter what I give him, he'd do a great job. It's just crazy to me to think that, you know, you're starting this company, multiple companies at this point, and then you're bringing on this 16 year old kid who obviously, you know, you guys end up working together and have such an incredible, you know, journey. What happened after that time? You know, Jack's now a part of this. You started this new company. Like you said, you made a lot of money. And, you know, we read it in the book, but just for our listeners, what happened next? I mean, what were the discussions like between you and the team, between you and Jack? And what did you end up doing? So um, the start of Square was sort of interesting. Jack, uh, you know, we're both from St. Louis. He came home for the holidays. And uh, I was just going to catch up with him, see what he was up to. And I knew he'd started Twitter. Um, but what I didn't know is in the meantime, they kicked him out. So, you know, Jack started Twitter. Um, with Biz and Ev. And this and is then, like 2009? Yeah, this would be 2009. 2009. Yeah, so they kicked him out. And uh, he's been kicked out of Twitter twice 
and Reason. counting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but he, uh, you know, he was really hurt and, uh, I was really angry. Um, and you know, Jack has always been sort of a friend, but he's also been, you know, somebody that, you know, at the time, I mean, it sounds silly, but I, you know, he's, he was like a little brother to me, you know, he's like somebody that you don't mess with. Right. So I, I suggested that we move out to California and get even with these guys. Like my, my impetus was just vengeance. I, I didn't want to start a company. I was like, let's just go get even with these assholes who kicked you out. And uh, that was my plan. Um, and Jack's plan was, he's like, well, why don't we do something positive with all that energy and start a new company? <laughs> and I was like, okay, that sounds better. Um, so, uh, so I was like, okay, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. So we, we knew we wanted to do something with mobile tech because the iPhone had just come out. And so we thought mobile was going to be a big deal. So we wanted to do something around that space. Um, but we also know, knew we didn't want to do anything in social because Twitter was sort of big and we didn't want to be anywhere near that. But neither of us had an idea. Uh, and then I went back to my glassblowing studio and I was trying to sell a piece of glass when I couldn't take a payment with an Amex card. And I lost a sale, and that pissed me off enough to have the idea for Square. When that when that happened, um, obviously you're in this mindset of you know I want to start a company with Jack, and you know you guys are brainstorming, going back and forth. Was it like an immediate click, like oh this is the company I got to start, or was it like just a yeah. feeling that you had where like you know what this is annoying? Yeah, um, perhaps something that we could start and look into. No, it's an immediate click because it, for me it's anger. I like for me I like a lot of my. Energy comes from negative emotions. Like I see problems that I want to, you know, fix them. And, and I, I know that's not sort of very Buddhist of me, but um, I, I just get driven by rage sometimes. And I see things that are wrong. And like I knew that I was being ripped off as a small merchant. And I knew what the credit card companies were doing to me. And I knew some of the games they were playing. I didn't know all of them. Um, and I was pissed off, but I was also one person. And you're like one person is not going to take on the credit card world. Um, but then one company can't. So when I lost that sale and I was like, I need to fix this problem for people like me. I called Jack and I told him about it. He liked the idea. The problem is we didn't know if there was anyone like me, you know, cause I'm sort of a weirdo and uh, how many small businesses want to take credit cards? Well, the answer was we didn't know cause none of them were. It turns out there were a couple of million, but we didn't know that at the time. So it was, I mean, yeah, it sort of clicked in my head, but it wasn't like I knew Square was going to be successful. It was, I just knew it was something that I wanted. Jim, here's my question though. So, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there and a lot of people listening now that have come across different problems, whether it's in their personal life, their professional life, just going to the grocery store or whatever. At all times of the day, there are always problems like, I have problems all the time, but it's easy to identify a problem. It's harder to identify a solution to that problem that doesn't exist yet. How did you, once you identified this problem that you had and that you didn't know others had, how did you come up with the solution? Because that's where a business can be built, right? So let me, let me stop you because they're baked into your question, which was a great question, is a is an inconsistency that that's the reason I wrote the book. Okay. One of the reasons I wrote the book. And, and what you said is 
come up with a solution that hasn't been done yet, i.e. I have to solve this problem and I have to solve it in a unique way in order to be successful. That's sort of the implication that I got from you, which is the way to think about, so, all right, let's break this down. If you're thinking about solving a problem, why do you care if the solution is original or not? Like if you care about solving the problem, do what everybody else does to solve the same damn problem. So if you have a problem and somebody else, I don't care if they're other side of the world or next door, if they've got a solution, copy what works for them. That's what you should do. That's a smart thing to do. Okay. But some problems have not been solved yet. And if you get one of those, then you have to invent, then you have to innovate. And, you, and it, that's a totally different process. So that's the thing. And, and that's the reason I wrote the book is because I would always do this second process very grudgingly because I'd be like, damn it. How come like I watch my friends start companies and their companies take off immediately and they do great stuff. But they're doing companies that have been done before. Like I got a friend who made a co- you know, made tons and tons of money starting a coffee company. Well, you know what? Coffee has been done. Like he can copy that. He can go to a trade show and figure out all the stuff he doesn't know. Um, he can hire consultants. And his business just took off. And mine were, mine were a different type of business. I was doing this thing that used to be called entrepreneurship. Nowadays, entrepreneurs means any type of business. But in the old days, the word entrepreneur meant just these crazy folks who are trying to do something that hadn't been done before. And if you're in that world, the rules are totally different. And so I, I, when, when I come into a problem, I do not look for a unique solution. I look for a solution. Now, if I find a problem that has never been solved before, then I have to ask myself the big question, which is, am I willing to do what it takes to solve an unsolved problem? That's way more effort. It's way riskier. There's no guarantee. But if you succeed, the payoff is a thousand to one. I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what square is at right now, but like I've been using the thousand to one, like a buck and square at our inception is worth at least a thousand dollars today, probably more. Um, Those are the sorts of returns you see from true innovation, not this sort of crap where you say, well, I got to do something new and different. I mean, that's, that's, that's what gives us blue flakes in the laundry detergent, right? You know, where those fucking things come. I don't know why they're in there, but I get, I bet it wasn't an engineer who said, Hey, we need something blue. I bet it was somebody in the marketing department said, Hey, you know what? I mean, so, so, so don't try to be original, like resist the urge to be original, but then be willing to be original when necessary. And if you know the difference, then, I mean, this is what I talk about in the innovation stack. Like it's a different way of thinking if you're doing something original and almost nobody ever talks about that because originality is such a commodity right now (laughs) that like, we don't even, we don't even have a fucking word to describe a person in business who's doing something unique. There's no word in the English language today to, I mean, can't you call that person almost like an inventor? Uh, yeah, an inventor, but an inventor doesn't necessarily have a business and an inventor is, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, in, it kind of, you know, but well, invention is only part of it, right? right here. Well, no, would you right call here. them? So what I did, I mean, this is, and this is why my book is sort of a pain in the ass is that I spend the first like couple of pages telling you that we used to have a word for it. 
Like right. humanity ran into this problem a hundred years ago and the economist, Joseph Schumpeter, basically popularized this French term called entrepreneur, which he used to describe these weirdos who were doing things that hadn't been done before. So entrepreneurs were not opening coffee shops because coffee shops were still around a hundred years ago and people knew about coffee shops. Entrepreneurs were trying to build airplanes because mankind had never flown. And so these crazy guys were jumping off cliffs with, you know, bat wings taped to their back and dying. And that's what an entrepreneur was. And you didn't let your daughter date one of those guys because they were crazy. And, and it was this, it wasn't this popular cool kid term that we're using right now. It was this, you know, sort of dishonorable label that they would put on you because they knew you were probably going to fail. Mm -hmm. So that's the so word I would use. So why not call it an entrepreneur? Where you yeah, I mean, I guess inventor. we do that. Don't you want to vomit when somebody <laughs> coins a new term like that and comes out with a book? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. No, I just I, what I wanted to do was I wanted I wanted to basically look my book. My book's a bunch of history. You know, it's 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 not a square memoir. I mean, we tell a couple of stories from the first person, but that's just because it's that's saving an interview. You know, um, right? I researched history and I looked and and you know for for hundreds, if not thousands of years, there's been this pattern of people coming across problems that nobody knows how to solve, figuring out how to do it in this way that I described. And then the result of that is a company that dominates the market. Biggest airplane airline in the country, Southwest Airlines, Innovation Sector, yeah. biggest furniture and company in the world, Ikea. And they're all founded by people who had no qualifications when they started, zero qualifications. And just to talk about that, because that's a really interesting part of the book that I love. And, and um, it's interesting because you know, we all often hear you, you, you coin it like the mythical expert. Like it's this person that supposedly has a bunch of like experience in something. Right. And, um, that, that oftentimes isn't a good indicator of success because as an entrepreneur, because, you know, if you want to solve another thing you mentioned is the perfect problem, um, then you sort of, you can't have any qualifications to do that. But do you think that people that have experience in a field, have some sort of advantage because they know what's been done and they know what's possible or is, is, is ignorance bliss is like not knowing the possibilities puts you in a better position to succeed. So it's, uh, it's good to have some knowledge, but it can really kill you, especially because what'll, what'll happen is you'll know that it's impossible. Right. And you never notice that, you know, Cartoon characters who run off cliffs never fall until they look down. Like that's a classic rule of like, if you don't look down, like if you don't know that gravity is about to, you know, make that little puff of smoke out of your body, um, it's, you don't fall. And um, like we hired an expert. I, I'm like, I hired an expert. I won't, I won't lay this on Jack. Uh, like I was so nervous when we started Square that we didn't know anything about credit cards that I hired one of the senior managers from MasterCard like one of the top guys at MasterCard uh, came to work for us as a consultant. And he told us everything that we were doing that was impossible. So we fired his ass because like we thought we could do it. And it turns out <laughs> we were right. Um, but he was not trying to, you know, he was not trying to be evil or, or wrong. He, he was on our side, but it's just that his experience in the, world was like it was like the invisible fence that you put up for your dog i mean you know you zap the guy you zap the poor animal you know three times in the neck uh and it goes well you know don't run into the neighbor's yard 
And then you turn the fence off and the dog never runs into the neighbor's yard again. Well, you know, this guy had been zapped in the neck enough times that, you know, he'd, he'd never mm -hmm. pee on, uh, on the neighbor's chrysanthemums. Um, but right. Jack and I, we, we didn't have an invisible fence. Well, that plus, I think entrepreneurs like you and Jack are more delusional. You, and I say that in a very um, positive way and not in a condescending way whatsoever or in a negative connotation. You don't see, you have blinders on, right? Like yeah. you don't think that it's not going to work. Whereas somebody like that senior manager from MasterCard, he wants a job. Like he wants a steady income. Sure, he'd love to be a part of a bigger startup and, you know, get paid in, you know, the equity that he's going to, whatever down the line. But that's just hope. There's, it's not blind optimism. And I think there is a big difference between people that have that blind optimism and are delusional because most of the time they're going to fail, frankly, just based off history and statistics. So I think that's the difference. And I think that's why you and Jack were able to do what you did was because there was no losing, like losing wasn't an option for you guys. Like if there wasn't a way you made the way. And I think that's kind of why innovation stack even exists is like, there's a problem. Boom. Like find a solution for that. There's another problem. Find a solution for that. Like continue yeah. to just find solutions to problems that don't exist. Right. But that's not how business people think. That's how entrepreneurs think. Yeah. But you just did something awesome. Okay. You apologize to me for using the word delusional, right? Because the word delusional has a sort of negative connotation and you didn't want to be just a total asshole and call me delusional. So you had to preface it with yeah. this little mini apology. That's exactly how the word entrepreneur used to be. Like you used, you used to say, well, you're kind of an entrepreneur, Jim, I don't mean to offend you, you know, yeah. like that's, that's how that, that, that word used to have that much power. Like the word delusional still has that sort of negative bite. Like this, this guy's crazy. He's going to do something stupid. Like, you know, don't leave him with the good scissors, you know? Um, <laughs> Hopefully in five years, we have a chief delusion officer at a, a yeah. I mean, but like this, this is, this is no. the thing. Like you just captured the spirit of what I was trying to do so beautifully, which is you, you apologize for this word that it's not negative. What's the, what's negative about being delusional? Like, like ignoring stuff that is barriers. Like that's one of the ways we get stuff done. But, but we, we treat entrepreneurship these days like this, you know, sort of rosy little thing where there's a formula and a checklist and everything you could do. And it's just going to work. I mean, if you're doing something that's been done, yeah, maybe you can have a checklist for that. But if you, if you're doing something new, there's no checklist. Okay, so I totally agree with what you're saying. And I love it. And just to play devil's advocate because we love to kind of have different perspectives here. Um, do you think that there are problems and issues out there that are impossible to solve through business? Or do you think that anything, anything that comes up, even if it's regulated, even if it's not, you know, borderline, not illegal, but just like you know, gray area, that there's always a way to figure it out? So... Uh, Look, they're absolutely unsolvable problems. There are problems that are physically unsolvable. There are things that we do not know how to do that cannot be done. And then, you know, and then there's quantum computing, which was physically impossible. And I still don't understand what the hell those things are. I've been trying to figure out what a qubit is and I don't really know. I mean, but, you know, uh, sometimes we get these magical new tools and the, the, the issue becomes when you've spent your life in a world of solvable problems where you can copy the solutions from others, and then you're placed in this world where there's no guarantee. And yes, there's a continuum. So it's a great question. I think you are better as an entrepreneur being a little delusional, being a little ignorant, being a little bit 
uh, full of yourself and thinking, I'm going to do it anyway. Because if you don't feel that, then the people you love and the people who love you are going to, in your best interest, try to talk you out of it. And they're going to give really good examples because they can give examples of other people who've done similar things and it didn't work. And there are a bunch of reasons why it's not going to work for you and blah, 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 blah. But so you got to be a little bit nuts to ignore that. But on the other hand, and I'm not saying, I'm not one of these guys that just preaches, oh, you can do anything. No, you can't. You can't do anything. The problem is I can't tell you what you're capable of. I can't even tell myself what I'm capable of. All I can do is prepare myself for the journey and start going. And sometimes I quit, but sometimes it works. And when it works, yeah, it's pretty good. Because the reason I ask is I feel like there are situations where someone um, wanted to, to create, perhaps they wanted to be an entrepreneur. They wanted to create something different, right? And that's that's kind of in them. And I don't know, that's that's what they want to do with their life. But there are times where a business just doesn't make sense. Like you, you're wasting your time. You're better off taking your mind and everything that's in it and everything you know and everything you're good at and applying it to something that perhaps could lead to something more successful, like a successful business. Because business is, innovation is a part of it, but you have to make money to survive. Otherwise, like there, I mean, these days there's endless money flowing around apparently in venture capital, but like in general, like you need to make money to survive. And so, you know, knowing when to quit or knowing when to pivot and knowing when to switch gears is is equally as important, I think. And so, how do you know and how do you how do you make that distinction of of when a, when you should be doing that, right? So, so, thank you for asking a question that's impossible to answer. I mean, that, <laughs> I'm just, that, I want to know what you. See, here's the thing: you just did what everybody does, which is they say, "Okay, yes, 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 I understand. There's no way to know." Now tell me the checklist. Like, like, tell me when I should quit. Like, how do I know when to yeah. give up? Okay, so so let me tell you what it's like. Um, some of your listeners will know about computer programs. Um, if you've ever written code, you know that you can have a thousand lines of code perfectly written, uh, a semicolon out of place, the whole thing doesn't work. One little thing. Um, if you're building something, especially if you're building something new, you build, you, 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 you fix one thing, something else doesn't work. You fix that, something else doesn't work. You fix that, something else doesn't work. Blah, 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 you keep going. At some point, you may run out of an ability to solve problems. Like the thing you need to do now is invent teleportation and that ain't gonna happen and therefore, or you need to reverse time or you need to get, you know, uh, you know electrons to pack in some form that electrons have never packed before, you know okay, you're up against a barrier that's probably going to stop you, okay? You'll probably never solve that. The problem is you don't know beforehand that that's the way the innovation stack's going to evolve. And this is, this is the, the, the heartbreaking thing about the question that you asked me, but it was a great question. I mean, you guys are both sort of, this is really good stuff, guys. Um, Thank you. You asked an awesome question because buried in that question was, again, this thing that we all want which is please give me a guarantee, please give me a checklist, please tell me when I'm gonna succeed or I'm not gonna succeed so I'll know when to quit, get a real job. If you're being an entrepreneur, <laughs> I can't tell you that. But it's not that I can't tell you, that nobody can tell you that. By definition, you're not gonna get that comfort. You don't get to know where the edge of the earth is. 
So, I mean, like the working title for my book was First Steps Off a Flat Earth because, you know, people used to think the earth was flat and that if you sailed in one direction for too long, you would sail off the end of the earth, right? Um, and of course, that's not true, but that's how people felt. And so the question is, well, what did it feel to be the first guy to sail in that direction with other people thinking that you were going to plummet off the edge of the earth? That's the feeling. And, and, and there are no guarantees. But God, what a great question. Thank you for that. No, I, I was just curious your thoughts. I know there's no right or wrong answer here. It was just, I love the way you, you put that. Um, so, yeah, but, but, so, but, but so the way you phrase the question is important. It's, fuck the answer. Like, it's, it's the point <laughs> that you're making is yeah. I have this question. I have this need because I've, I've been raised my entire life by people who are experts teaching me, who's learning. I'm the student. You know, that's, that's your first 12 years or 16 years or 20 years of education. You're copying, you're copying, you're copying, you're learning from experts. Um, then you get out in the real world and you learn, you know, how to behave by copying people whose behavior uh, is, is something you want to emulate. And you, you learn all this stuff and, and, and you're rewarded for that behavior. And then you come up to this new thing where that behavior doesn't work anymore, but you've had several decades of conditioning. Uh, and, and by the way, several million years of evolution, because this is baked into what we are as humans. I mean, if I got a little kid at home. All she does is copy. Mm. Like, yeah, you know, it's, it's how we are wired. And if you don't recognize that and have the ability to throw a circuit breaker on the, at the point where that wiring is no longer serving you, then you're screwed. Because what will happen is you'll quit. And the reason I wrote the damn book is because I see too many people quitting. And I wanted to say, no, 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 no. Look, I understand you're not an expert. But in this particular situation, because nobody's ever done it, there are no experts. So you can't be an expert. The Wright brothers weren't experts when they flew the first plane. Nobody had flown a plane. You can't be an expert when you're the first. That doesn't mean you can't do it. And I think your book is more relevant now than ever, you know, being in this coronavirus pandemic and seeing just the world changing and everything that we have known is changing. Like the way we live our daily lives is changing and we can't turn to history and say, oh yeah, you know, that's how they solved this problem during a situation like this. It's like, no, there was not a situation like this with an identical problem. So whatever you do, everyone has to be an innovator nowadays in the way they live their just daily lives, like to solve the small problems, forget business problems. So it's yep. like, you know, reading this book and then, you know, kind of applying it to just life, not even just only business. It's like, how do we take these problems that we now have and then slowly solve them one by one? Because I can't turn back and be like, oh yeah, you know, 35 years ago, you know, this is how they did this. It's like, no, this is what people are going to look at in 20 years and say, oh yeah, that's how Posh did it. That's how Pat did it. That's how Jim did it based on this. You know, hopefully there's no pandemic, but if there was, they can turn to this example. So I think, you know, it's very relevant. Like this innovation stack is relevant in more than just business, but kind of taking it back to square, you know, you build this product, that little square that and everybody by the way, knows. Yeah. Just a, how did you know? So again, this is a problem that you had faced that there wasn't a solution for. And we all know what you built. You built an actual card reader that goes into the iPhone jack, which I had personally never seen something like that being done before and utilizing the iPhone jack like that. So how did you even know and how did you even end up on into like that solution? How did you know what to build? Oh, God. <laughs> Make Magazine, version one. There was an uh, article about a guy who hacked, uh, uh, hacked a Motorola, Motorola phone with uh, 
and, and shoved it into, uh, shoved the signal through the headphone jack. Um, so um, it, uh, it pays to be a geek sometimes. But look, the real question yeah. with us was whether or not Apple was going to ban us from the platform because we were violating the clear intent of the dock connector, right? So Apple wants you to pay them and uh, go through this lengthy approval process and buy this $4 uh, ASIC chip to um, put a signal into the iPhone through the bottom where you're supposed to put signals in. That's how you're supposed to connect the iPhone to something. Um, and that seemed to us to be needlessly expensive, stupid, and um, clunky. Uh, so we decided to violate Apple's intention and go in through <laughs> the, 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 the unprotected microphone uh, jack, uh, which we did. And we were the first company to do that. And it was a huge risk because, you know, Apple could have looked at us and banned the product. I mean, and that's sort of what you would expect them to do. Um, right. But Steve was around at the time and we figured we could get Steve Jobs to uh, protect us. That was our plan. Our plan was to like, <laughs> you know, like totally disrespect their phone <laughs> um, and their intentions, but then have Steve save us. Um, and it, it kind of worked. Yeah. <laughs> but why yeah, do you that, think that happened? Why didn't they why didn't they ban uh, like third party companies using the headphone jack for like I would think that that's something that maybe they would eventually want to introduce products for, right? If that was their intention. Well, so uh you understand Apple at the time was this sort of weird weird company because Steve was very ill. So there was this yeah drama of succession but steve was still in charge and he was holding meetings we had a meeting with steve he had to cancel it because of his health started failing but you know steve steve came into that company uh you know like a tornado like he would ride elevators with somebody and ask them what they did for apple and if he if they didn't have a good answer he would yank their employee badge and say you're out of here you no longer work for apple computer what do you do well, I'm in the third. I don't understand that. Give me your badge. Like, what do you do? What do you do to make this company good? They rip your badge off. You, you know? Um, so uh, we had a meeting with Steve. <laughs> and I was the guy who was supposed to build the hardware. And Steve was legendary for like hating other people's designs, especially physical designs. So I was terrified. Um but then, you know, the meeting got canceled. But the thing about Apple is that everybody knew who Steve was meeting with, right? So I think just the fact that we had the meeting meant that the brass at Apple was not going to mess with us. That's my guess. Now, can I prove that? Heck no. Is it the best explanation I've come up with? Yes. Do I believe that's what happened? Yeah, I think so. Because I think, look, if you'd let the attorneys at Apple look at what we were doing, they would have just banned us. But... The other thing that that sort of saved Square was that our product worked. Like it was really cool. Like you would almost forgive us the fact that we were violating 17 laws and rules and regulations with every transaction, which we were. The count was 17 um, because it was cool. Like you want it to work. Right. Like you want this thing to, to go, you know? I mean, the first Tesla is just a friggin' uh, uh, it's a, it's a Lotus Roadster, you know, with a bunch of Dell laptop batteries taped underneath. Okay. 
that's not a real car, but hey, it's cool. Like we want this to work. I know there's some problems. So, so we had something that, you know, even if it broke a bunch of rules, it was cool enough to get us, I, I think just a little bit of breathing room. That's, that's my theory. I can't prove that. Um, one part of the book that I, I love is in the beginning, um, when you, when you sort of put this graphic in there of the, the triangle of what the market looked like at the time. And, and at the bottom of that triangle is a, is a brand new market. Like you said, merchants that weren't able to collect credit cards because they were, I mean, they, they just they didn't have a solution for them. And that's a whole part of the market that was underserved. That was the biggest part of the market, right? Um, at the bottom of that triangle. And, the, and they, it, that it, part it of the market didn't exist. Didn't exist. Like it, it, exactly. it, was, it, it turns out that it was not part of the market when we started. It didn't exist, but it became right. the biggest part of the market when Square showed up. Yeah. But so can you, is that like, is that how you should be thinking about it? Is um, like when, you know, if you deal with the problem, perhaps, you know, there isn't a solution for it, but is there a massive underserved market that would you know, purchase a product or service in the space? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think like if you want to make a company that is world changing and has dramatic effect, um, you know, uh, Southwest Airlines, it's a $20 billion company. Um, and, and they're an airline stock. They've lost a ton of value in the last, uh, uh, you know, yeah, last year. But like even, even after a, just a precipitous decline. They, they, you know, it's a $40 billion company. Um, biggest airline in the country, uh, built with an innovation stack, built to expand that pyramid. Okay, you know, Square, I mean, I don't know where we're at right now, but it, we're pretty sizable. Um, uh, built to expand that pyramid. Like if you, so if you're looking, well, put it this way. My book is not a textbook on how to do this. Okay. I do teach some, I do, there are some tricks in there and there's this theory, but I don't think I'm going to be, you know, lecturing at business schools on how to build a blah, 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 you know, um, because none of the people that I studied set out to do it that way. They set out to solve a problem. They typically set out to solve a problem for little people. And it turns out if you solve a problem for little people, there are a lot of little people. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems I'm working on right now is an affordable diaper. Okay. A third of the families in the United States can't afford diapers. One out of three families, that's, that's insane. That's where poverty starts. So I'm working on cheap diapers. Now, is that going to uh, change the world? Yeah, actually, you know, break the cycle. Everyone's cycle a baby. Well, yeah, I mean, but like if you're a rich baby, then uh, you get to go to preschool. And if you're a poor baby, you don't go to preschool. And it's not because you can't go to preschool. It's because they can't, you can't go put a kid in preschool without gi giving the preschool diapers. Okay. Yeah. And if you can't afford diapers, you know what, you know what mothers are doing? They're dehydrating their children over the weekends to save up enough diapers to afford to have some childcare so that they can go out and maybe get a job. I mean, it's, it's a cycle of poverty. Like if you can get the price of diapers down, that would change the world. Now, I mean, that pyramid that I show in the book, that was the moment that Square to me took on this bigger thing because I just wanted, you know, I started the company basically for myself. I wanted to solve my own problem. Uh, and then I tell a story about my friend, Bob. Bob's a crazy guy and he could have used Square because <laughs> he was living in his car and, 
a good glass blower, mm-hmm. but you know, guy lived in his car. Um, when I saw that data, and that data was from the Federal Reserve, that was not you know some payment industry. That was that was the Fed. And uh, I saw that, and I was like, oh my god, there are millions of us. There are millions of us little people. Like I didn't know how many little ones there were. Um, you know, I know about the diaper problem because I honestly I spend a lot of time in an area that's pretty poor. Um, uh, I got a lot of friends that live on the other side of the tracks and they've got relatives who can't afford diapers, believe it or not. Um, and I care about the problem. I, I don't know if I'm going to do anything about it, but, um, yeah, at the bottom of the pyramid, like yeah, it's a, it's a good place to start. Yeah. And the book, um, you know, I know it's not, like you said, it's not like a step-by-step guide and that's what I love about it. It's, it's more of like a mindset. And a- after reading it, I've looked at real life examples of companies that I think are really successful and why they might have gotten to that point. And it's a lot of it is what you talk about is, is the originality that they didn't do intentionally, but you know, the sort of innovation stack that they created along the way. But as you talk about, you know, once you do something like that, you're going to see copycats, you're going to see competitors, yeah. you're going to see people yeah. entering the market as you know, as you start gaining more and more traction, you're going to see that. And so, for you guys, for Square, um, you know, you talk about how Amazon got into the game, and once Amazon gets into the game, you're like, oh shit, what do I do now? Yeah. Um, and they they release their own uh, reader, and then eventually, um, you know, they decide to discontinue it and implement Square into the, uh, that. You know, they start shipping squares to their customers. Yeah. And so, how did why like? I know you know you you, t- you think you don't know how that happened or you don't really know why, but why? I guess like looking back, do you have any idea like how that even came to be? I mean, how did we beat Amazon, or why did they ship a square reader to their former customers? Well, I you know you by 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 discontinuing it, we know we, we saw how you beat Amazon, and I know you say like you didn't actually try, you actually chose not to do anything, right? You didn't choose yeah. to go to battle with them. You just sat back and and it happened. But why do you think it happened? Well, because they weren't making it, they were getting their ass kicked. They were, they, they, something, Amazon's not stupid. They were failing and didn't think they could succeed. And, um, you know, it's the same reason United canceled TED, you know, the largest airline in the country decides to attack a startup. Southwest was a startup at the time, um, comes up with their own brand uh, called TED. I don't know if anyone remembers it. Uh, the joke is that it stood for uh, United without you and I on board. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, the I was not at Amazon, but they're rational people. If they'd been able to make money and serve, produce a good product, they would have stuck with it, but they couldn't. Um, and I go through the math of the innovation stack and how that protects a company. But I don't want to do math on a podcast because you'll lose half your listeners. So um, uh, I think there's... Uh, something else about Amazon that's really cool and very positive, And that is they thought enough about their customers to give them a square device when they got out of the market because they care about their customers. And yeah, I mean, I go off on Amazon about uh, being a vicious competitor and you don't want to get attacked by Amazon under any circumstances, no matter who you are. But uh, as a Amazon customer, um, it's a wonderful experience and Amazon's looking out for you. And Amazon was looking out for their customers, even when they were saying, you're not going to be our customers anymore. So I thought it was pretty cool. And during this time that you guys are building Square, you know, there's obviously constant innovation around you, which I think is awesome, right? Like there's other companies that are coming into the scene 
not in your not in your space, but other companies that are selling their products, selling their service. Eventually, you know, e-commerce starts to grow, and you know, obviously today, you know, we live in this e-commerce age where everything can be bought online. How did that impact Square, and how fast did you guys have to iterate and continue to grow and change the way you guys were doing things as the businesses around you were changing, as there were more people using your product? Did that have any sort of impact on how you guys and how you led the company? Well, absolutely. So first of all, I'm, I'm not a leader. I'm, I'm, I'm a founder. I start the company and I was, you know, sort of in a leadership position for about a year. Um, but I'm not a good, I'm not good at running companies. So I always make that disclaimer. Um, I don't run any of my companies. Um, I always try and find somebody who, who's good. Um, so we realized very quickly looking at our merchants that they wanted to do what's called omni-channel, which is retail and online. So that you want a physical presence and then you want to sell online. And there's sort of two different worlds. But if you're making a payment system, you can bridge those worlds because we actually had a lot of data in our systems that could easily help them make a web store. So it was a natural extension of what Square was doing to take the data that we already had and allow them to do um, a quick and dirty web store. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of my businesses, actually my glass blowing studio here in St. Louis, which has never had an online store uh, when it was shut down for COVID, um, used Square to build, build an online store. And we got it up in like two days. They couldn't believe it. And these are a bunch of glass blowers. This is not a bunch of programmers. This is just a bunch of guys who, uh, you know, uh, have pretty dirty hands most days and they are uh, now on the web. So uh, it turns out having a lot of small customers who uh, have similar needs is a great way to innovate with your products. You know, you talk about building com- or starting companies, but not running them and, you know, leading the team. Why is that the case? And how do you find people to lead those people? And what is your involvement like in those companies after the fact, when you're, you know, when they're growing or, or even like, for example, Square Now, you know, Jack Dorsey's the CEO, but what is your involvement like? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a director, which means I'm one of the voices at the table, but not the voice. Um, uh, you know, Square's got its own trajectory right now that has been independent of me for almost a decade. So I'm, I'm not a good manager. I never wanted to be a manager. I don't find the things that make managers good. Um, to be things that I'm good at, um, process, structure, um, consistency, man, I got none of that stuff. Um, so you don't want to work for me. Um, you may want to work at a company that I started because I always try to find somebody to run my companies who is good at those things. So I am, because I'm deficient in certain areas, um, I compensate by always trying to partner with somebody who's exceptional at those areas. So, you know, Jack, really wanted to be a manager. Uh, he's, uh, I think, proven that he's excellent. Um, and uh, what better partner could you ask for? So I'm really happy to just step out of the way of people who know what they're doing. Um, one thing I was I'm curious about is, you know, you talk about um, the entrepreneur's ability to manage fear and fear is something that comes up probably on a daily basis for entrepreneurs that are especially you know create entrepreneurs that are creating something in a market that doesn't exist because there's so many uncertainties and so many problems that arise on a probably minute by minute basis so what is what has your approach been to sort of um continuing to stay focused on what's at hand and um being optimistic and uh i guess like navigating through all that do you have like a an approach or is it just you just do it. Yeah. And again, like I'm just one data point. So I, I wouldn't want your listeners to 
say, oh, well, Jim does it this way. Therefore, I do it this way. Um, I tend to be very fear-driven. Um, I tend to, if I care about a problem enough to try to solve it, then I'm also very worried that I won't be able to solve it, that I'll fail. Um, and I wish that was a positive emotion. I wish it was something that, you know, I got up and I said, I know I can do it, but I often don't know I can do it, but I just keep going. Um, and I don't know why. Um, I really haven't psychoanalyzed myself uh, to to unpack that, but I will tell you that it's, it's, it's somewhat negative in there. And I, that's, that's just how it works. Um, but I also have motivational problems. Okay. So I'm a guy who, you know, would probably sleep until 1030 every morning, uh, if possible. Um, so how do I get out of bed? And the answer is I get out of bed because of the fear, um, or because I'm worried that if I don't, something won't happen. Like nobody will fix this problem that I care about. Um, so what I talk about in the book, and, and this is sort of my trick is I, if you look at perseverance, you look at the ability to, you know, sort of work through a problem, which is how we get through every problem. Um, and you're a person like me who doesn't have good perseverance. Um, then the way you synthetically create perseverance is put yourself in do or die situations, right? If you are or your company is in danger, perseverance is not a problem. Like if, if, it's a, if it's an emergency, I'm your guy. I'm so good at handling dire situations because that's how I live. Like I create crisis. Um, it's, it sucks to be married to me, I'm sure, um, because I just, I just create crises um, because that's how, like I don't have any problem motivating myself when there's a crisis. Like, you know, oh, COVID-19, world shuts down? Man, I'm good with that. Like I, people are suffering. Uh, I got to do something to help them. Uh, I got to protect my loved ones and help out. Other, yeah, I'm, I'm totally there. I don't, I don't, I, I spring out of bed at 530, you know, um, it's when everything's going well and there's a checklist and it's rinse and repeat that, uh, you know, that I hit the snooze 20 times. I'm curious. It was a question that I wanted to ask earlier on when we talked about your high school days, like, and my question was, what was your definition of success when you were in high school and out of college? Getting a date. And then, and then what is your definition of success now? Um, wow. It's an awesome question. Um, you know, in, in high school, it was, I, I don't think I had a definition of success. I just, I didn't question what I was doing. I was just doing it. You know, I was a middle-class suburban kid at a public high school. Uh, uh, the family was safe. Everyone was good. Um, I just thought I would do what everyone else was doing and go to college because that's what the smart kids seemed to do. So I went to college. And then, you know, and then things started to go a little weird in college um, because I found out uh, that I was wired differently. And I didn't realize that I was wired differently until I started seeing the results pile up. Uh, and they weren't all positive results, but enough of them were that I was able to sort of then strike out. And then, you know, upon graduation, I, I was offered a job with Accenture. It was called Arthur Anderson Consulting at the time, but uh, it was my only job offer because I didn't interview. Like I, everyone else was interviewing for jobs and I was like, I don't know. So I didn't interview, uh, but I met this guy at a cocktail party who ran Arthur Anderson. And he was like, you should come work for Arthur Anderson. And I was like, oh, I guess I need to get a job now. I guess that's like the next step. Uh, 
So I, I went and interviewed and the guy offered me a real nice job uh, at a consulting firm. And they had this thing called method one, which was 16 ring binders of how to solve every problem. It was like the biggest checklist in the world. Like, here's how we do everything at Arthur Anderson. And I just vomited in the back of my throat. Like it was just horrible. And I was like, do I want to come in here every day and have to look up in book number six, the, you know, sub clause to handle this thing, the Arthur Anderson way. And so I refused. (laughs) Um, And so I ended up working for this other guy uh, who was a crook. Uh, And I told you the story, I quit, you know, but like, um, like, like there was, I never really asked the question. I never, but, 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 but I will tell you there, there was a question. There was a time when the question was, was sort of foist upon me. And that's probably a good, a good example. Um, It was the day I realized that I was rich. So I was driving to my glass studio. This was, 15 years ago, way before Square, way before Square. Um, I was blowing glass. My other company was running basically with somebody else at the helm. So I had a bunch of free time. I was in the studio a lot. And the radio had a contest where they'd given away 10 grand. And the announcers came on the voice and said, just think how winning $10,000 will change your life. And I thought about it. I was like, wow. Like, if somebody gave me $10,000 today, it wouldn't change anything. Like I would eat lunch with the same grubby people that I'm friends with. I would go to the same grubby studio. I would still be covered in black dirt that never washes out of my hands. Like I would still live in the same area. And I, I so, so I did this thought experiment. I was like, well, if $10,000 won't change my life, how much would, like what would have to, like how much money would I have to have to do anything in my life differently? And I came up with a number that was astronomical. It was so high. I was like, and the number was, was $60 it? million. $60 million. Okay. And I said, if I had $60 million, I could invest it and live off the proceeds and afford a turbine aircraft. Because I'm a pilot and I fly a little plane, but I fly a shitty plane. I have a $23,000 Mooney. It was built in 1966. It's got four cylinders and it creaks and groans, but like, I have, a, I have a plane that's cheaper than your car. Like, that's what I fly. But it's a good plane. It's perfectly safe. I love it. I get around, I get around in it. And I, but, you know, sometimes the plane, I would get into trouble, and I wouldn't have weather radar or the ability to climb out of a problem. And I thought, man, if I could afford, if I could afford like, a turbine plane that I could, I could get out of those trouble. Like, sometimes I get myself in trouble in the clouds. Like, I, I just want to be able to blast out. So I thought, maybe that would change my life. And then I thought about it. I was like, that is so stupid. Like if the only difference in anything would be like, I change the airplane that I fly. I was like, I guess I'm rich and I'm not rich because I had a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of money, but no amount of money was going to change anything. Okay. So here I am today. I won't tell you how, well, I guess you can look that up, but I'm embarrassed about how much (laughs) money I have, but guess where I live? Same place. Guess who I hang out with? Same people. Guess where I'm going right after this call? I'm going to take off this shirt and uh, go get my hands dirty uh, in the glass studio. And then I'm going to go home and have dinner with friends that I've had for 30 years. And I'm going to cook. You know, (laughs) we're not having it catered. I don't have little guys in uniforms coming into my house. I'm making dinner tonight, you know. Uh, And and I'm just going to ask. 
I'm just going to ask you because, like you said, you can search it. You're you have a lot of money, right? Square is worth billions of dollars. You probably have billions of dollars. I don't look at the Square stock price. Probably. Um, why do you think what what makes you that way? What makes you that way? Right? Like, yeah. What makes you not like be be the same person when you have all this money that like people dream of that think that they're going to be a totally different person and they're going to be doing a lot of other things. And, and oftentimes we talk, we've talked to a lot of folks who have a bunch of money as well. And they are, they, they, in a sense, like they have a similar mindset where it's like, I'm still the same person and I haven't changed too much of my life. And obviously we see examples of the opposite, but for you specifically, like, what do you think makes you that way? Uh, that you, it hasn't really affected you as much. It's, it's sort of lack of ego. Like I don't have the ego for my bank account. Like there are guys and gals with massive egos who could take massive piles of money and do really lavish stuff with it. Um, and I mean, we got a two car garage at home and we used to have a one car garage, but like my wife and I both like parking indoors because St. Louis has some bad weather. So I was like, oh, you know, let's build a two-car garage. And she's like, okay. So we built it, like we added on a two-car garage. So now I can park both cars indoors. I just don't care. Like, and I, I, I mean, I know guys who have, I have one guy who has an elevator for his cars. Freaking elevator. Turntable and elevator. Dope. Yeah, I know it is, but like, do you really want to be Batman? Okay. And do you really want to have to service some damn elevator that you know is, you know, like, what are you going to do when that thing doesn't work? Like, like, oh, oh, your excuse for like being late is, I'm sorry, the elevator in my garage got stuck. Uh, I mean, come on. It's a pain in the ass to have this stuff. Um, I don't care. I didn't point it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I like, I, but, uh, but like the difference between, so I've got a lot of friends who are billionaires now. Not a lot, but I've, I've met a few and I hang out with a couple of them. Um, it's, it's not that much better. Like, it's just not, like, if you're doing it for the money, don't do it. Like, it's just, it's, the delta is not that different, you know? Yeah. I am far from a billionaire. I'm more, I'm closer to being a negative billionaire than I am to being a positive, you know, billionaire. But um, a negative in the, the rest of the you know. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm in a unique category. I'm sure Pat and I are very similar in that area. Uh, I'm very proud of it. But, um, you know, what, I think that it kind of ties back into the word entrepreneur, right? Like you talk about it in the book, we talked about it here, where, you know, there's these people that are crazy, wild, delusional, want to build something new, and they are motivated by just that, right? Like not a single time in your book or even now did you mention well, you know, I was trying to make money or I made money. Like there was never, we never discussed that until this success discussion. But then there are people that want to make money. The people that are business owners, the people that need to feed their families. And, and that's, nothing's wrong with that, right? You want to no, make no, money. You need great. to make money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, totally. I'm not knocking it. I, I'm not knocking it. So don't get, just because I sit there. Yeah. No, but my question is, I think a lot of people think that entrepreneurship is sexy and they want to become entrepreneurs because they see your net worth. They Google Jim McKelvey net worth. They Google Jack Dorsey net worth, Mark Zuckerberg net worth. And they think, wow, 20 billion, 36 billion, 100 billion, whatever. Jeff Bezos about to be trillionaire, right? And they're like, oh, we want to be that. 
right? But that's not what any of those people were motivated by. But we never hear them talk about what they actually were motivated by. From your experience as an entrepreneur, true entrepreneur, and your experience with other entrepreneurs that you know, what was their motivation when they began? And how can the people that are listening to this, the people that Pat and I know, the people that you know, how can they mimic that and change their motivation from, I want to make money to, I want to do this, Okay, whatever so, this is. So don't say change their motivation, okay? Because that's like saying, I want to be attracted to different people. Like sure. if you're attracted to a certain sort of person, you don't get to go to a seminar to have that reprogrammed. Like if, right. if, if, if you're hot for this person and not that person, Hey man, that's, that's, that's wired into you. Maybe, I mean, I, maybe it's not, I don't know. But the point is, I think that's a bad thing to say, change their motivation. Okay. Huh. But what I'd suggest they could do is find something that they, mo- that motivates them that they didn't notice. Okay. So like I, I'm deeply concerned right now about the demise of journalism and why we're you know, losing uh, a, a lot of quality content. And I looked at the economics of that and I was like, I want to fix this. Can I fix this? And I came up with an idea that I thought might work. And I've been trying it for three years. It hasn't worked yet. We're still working on it. But, um, you know, that's that's motivation. And so. But, but you got to be honest with yourself because if you're doing it for the money, my advice is don't be an entrepreneur. There are plenty of people who've made a ton of money copying other successful businesses. That's a good formula. Do that. Someone will fund you. Work hard. You'll be rich. Great. Not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who want to have the ability to solve problems that nobody else has solved before. And, and you think that that's going to require some Herculean effort. It turns out it doesn't. It requires this pretty simple thing called the Innovations Act. So you guys have both read the book. And like, were any, uh, let me ask you a question. Were any of the things that Square did really that special? Was any of it that surprising? Did you read Southwest Airlines Innovation Stack and say, wait a second, I don't understand uh, one class of service or, you know. Right. It's like, well, when you look at each piece like each change or each innovation within the stack which is a a combination of innovations it's really not but the combination of all those things you end up like it leads you to a place where when looking back in hindsight it's like everything is different well it's a unique solution each change difference like if you're building a car right every car is the same fucking components right but maybe not the Tesla. but every other car is the same components they're just taking it from this manufacturer versus this manufacturer, or they're changing this color, or they're putting LED lights, they're putting a fucking laser, whatever. Yeah. It's just a different, at the end of it, the product's unique because one thing might've been different or three things might've been different, but it's a unique brand. Like that's what the mission of that brand was, or that was the mission of Square or with Southwest. Like their mission is completely different. So it's more so I think tied to the mission. So to answer your question, like, no, I, don't, I, didn't, I wasn't surprised by any one thing. It was more so the entirety that was like, wow. And and what I wanted to explain to people was like, all of these super successful multi-billionaires were just normal people who put themselves in these particular situations. And I explained how to put yourself in that situation. I mean, Pat nailed it. You talk about the pyramids. Like, you want to put yourself in a situation? 
uh, let more people into the party, figure out how to make it more open. That's, that's, that's a good formula in any industry for, you know, multi-billion dollar success, if that's how you measure success. But I don't measure it that way. I would measure it based on the inclusion of those people. But it's not that hard. Now, I, I would say it's not that hard. It's not that hard to understand. Like there's not right. some step here where you've got to be the genius who understands quantum mechanics and everybody else is sitting there in a Newtonian world. You just don't have to be that smart to do this stuff. You don't have to be that special to do that stuff. I mean, and I give example after example after example. And by the way, I'm an example. You know, beans about payments work great. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you got uh, some glass blowing to do, so uh, we'll <laughs> let you go. But this has been a awesome conversation. Um, thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, we really, uh, we really appreciate you putting it out there in the world because, I, like I said, it was it's one of the best, uh, my favorite business related, entrepreneur related books because it was just so new. The information was so new, and it wasn't like a anything I've been exposed to before. So anyone who's listening who um, is an entrepreneur themselves or wants to be an entrepreneur, like we, we highly recommend it. Um, but cool. Jim, thank and, you so much for the time. Because there's a comic book version, you know the. Did you write a book on that? Oh my god, that was one of my favorite parts of the stories. The the oh, Bank of uh, Bank yeah, of Italy. Yeah. So, you get a free copy of the comic, or and I think if you give us your address, we'll mail what you want. But like, the awesome. book was originally a graphic novel because I hate business books, and I was I didn't want to write one. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I did a comic version, so you don't actually have to slog through the text. You can. Uh, Watch buildings explode Sweet. and people get shot. I mean, there's Jim, a guy in a cape. Um, <laughs> what's a non-business book that you recommend people who want to be entrepreneurs or in business? What's that one book that they should read? Wow. If they, if they, if they, I would recommend Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy just because it's funny as hell. He help you keep a sense of humor. That would be the one. It's not. A, it's not going to be a business book. It's just this. It's it's this attitude of this guy who you know Earth gets destroyed and he's bopping through the universe bungling around and um like that's kind of what it's like like if you want to have if you want to have the mindset it's a sense of humor and a sense of bewilderment if you're doing something that hasn't been done that's that's how you're going to feel a lot so might as well get used to it and have a sense of humor about it love it well jim thank you so much uh you know we'll let you go but this has been awesome thank you so much guys thank you so much jim.